look at Matthew chapter 4. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that as we uh, open up this text, as we continue our journey through the gospel of Matthew, Lord, we ask that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of the text. Lord, help us uh, to see how this passage applies to us in our lives. Lord, what, um, what lessons we can take to heart. Father, we pray that you would use this text to, to really um, to, to convict us, Lord, to guide us, Lord, to help us ultimately to walk closely with you. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he'd fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and began to minister to him. And Lord, we do thank you for this passage. Lord, we ask that you would help us, Lord, as we work our way through, that you would give me wisdom and discernment as I teach this passage. Father, we pray that your spirit would guide us along the way. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so this is a a fairly known passage. Uh, Before we get into it, I want to sort of frame it um, to introduce you guys to a couple big theological terms um, that are important because part of our problem with this passage is our minds are limited in being able to fully grasp certain concepts. And I'm not sure that I'll be able to help us rectify that problem. Um, But one of the big tensions that comes with this passage is sort of rooted in the issue what's referred to by theologians is the hypostatic union of Christ. And what that big term means in essence is that Jesus, while on earth, was fully God, 100% God, and yet he humbled himself and he was fully man. So he's 100% God, 100% God, I forget what I said, he's 100% God and 100% man. 200% don't mathematically work in my brain. I I don't know how you can be two things, but the scripture makes it very clear that he was. And so in this truth, on the one side, his being God comes us to deal with 
an issue theologically that's referred to as the impeccability of Christ. Another big word, not all it really means is that Jesus being God is God. God in his character, in his nature, does not have the capacity to sin. He can't. God cannot sin. God in his nature is holy. He's, uh, he's always existed. He's pure. He cannot sin. And so in our finite brains, we can come to this passage of the temptation of Christ and we can dismiss what Christ went through by saying, well, he's God, of course. Like, there's absolutely, uh, this wasn't a struggle for him because he's God, so he didn't go through. He doesn't understand what, what I go through, the, what it's like to be human, what, what, what struggles we go through as we're faced with temptations. He doesn't get it. Now, the other big word, which really isn't a theological term, it's referred to as the kenosis of Christ. The kenosis is simply a Greek word that's found in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8. And it talks about, as Paul is encouraging the church uh, to, to follow after Christ, to follow his example, the example that we're supposed to follow is his humility. And the humility that Christ gave us, Paul begins to lay out that Christ was God, that he existed in eternity past when earth and its creation came into existence. It was Christ who spoke it into existence. And yet when he came to earth, Paul lists that he, he emptied himself, that he took on the, the form of a man, that he became a man. Um, my brain is going to be limited in, in explaining this whole thing, but the, the kenosis refers to Jesus in his deity, in his Godwardness, as he takes on the bond of flesh, he sort of put a governor on himself, that he, he placed limitations so that he fully experienced humanity and what it meant to be a man. He was, he was born as a baby. He, Luke tells us that he had to grow and to mature but he, he was breast, I mean, to think about it, Jesus was breastfeeding as a, as a baby. He had poopy diapers and he stumbled and fell and tried to, to grow. And he went through all of these things that we as humans go through. And Paul says that this example, this creator took on the form of flesh. He lived his life. He went to death, to a death on the cross where he was executed. That this humility is the humility of, that that we are to sort of imitate as followers of Christ. Now in this passage, as we look at the temptations that Christ faced, we need to have it clear in our mind that Satan is bringing his A-game. Like Satan is not a rookie when it comes to temptation. He started way back with Adam and Eve. He's been tempting and stumbling humans for all of this time, he has literally thousands of years of experience. As he brings his A-game to Jesus, there's no doubt in my mind that Satan thought that he had a chance to stumble Christ in his humanity. We, we need to recognize the intensity in which these attacks happened um, during this 40 days, but really through all of Christ's earthly life, 
this is the target that Satan would have to go after. And why would Satan think that he had a chance? See, we think of Satan as like, you know, the, the big bad boogeyman that's just evil and can, can uh, stump up everything. But, but if we go back and we think through how the Bible displays him and, and shares about him, we learned in Ezekiel and Isaiah that Satan, that Lucifer was actually, he's an angel. He was, of all of the angels, he was the sort of the head angel, that his sole purpose was to worship God exclusively. And so somewhere in history, I don't know when, before Adam and Eve, before the creation, somewhere in there, according to Isaiah, as he's ministering and worshiping to God, he gets it in his heart that he wants to be God. And so he falls from heaven. He takes a third of the angels with him because he wants to receive this. And so if he fell, certainly he would think that he would have a shot at Jesus and his humanity. And so looking at this passage, why would God, we see in verse 1, that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Why would the Father do this to Jesus? Um, I stumbled across an illustration that's sort of rooted in history, but I couldn't exactly find the historical um, names and places. And and so anytime, like, the, the illustration, the historical part of it has nothing to do with the illustration, but... Because I'm not a history buff, I want to do a little bit of homework. So I called my history buff yesterday, who's my father-in-law. And I'm like, I got this illustration. This is the story. And I'm going to talk you through it. And can you, I just don't want to give this illustration sort of like, I don't know when this was. And then for everybody to say, dude, that was Abraham Lincoln during this. You didn't know that? Like, I just want to make sure it's not some big, obvious historical stuff that I like. I don't want to expose my lack of history um, before you all. And so I tell him everything. And he's like, man, I could have been anything. Like, I, like, you have a name. Nope, nothing. He's like, I would just move on. I'm like, okay. But I, I have a hard time letting things go. And so I'm Googling. I'm researching. I finally got close enough to a source that so from my best ability, this is illustration that I'm going to talk to you about. That it, 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 was, it was used in Today in the Word, which is a devotional by Moody Bible Institute. It was, published in Mar- it was published in March 14th of 1991. If Moody published this historical story, I'm convinced it's true. But the story is, is that as the Union Pacific Railroad was moving west, they were building the railroad track. They eventually came to somewhere. I have no idea where it is. If you know, tell me. That They came across this gorge that was larger than any gorge they'd ever crossed before, and they didn't know how they were, were going to bridge the gap. And so they had to call in um, a top-tier engineer to come in to look at the gorge, to do the math and the engineering, to figure out how they could span this gap safely. And so he eventually... They, he eventually did the engineering. They eventually built it. They spanned the gap. From the best I could tell, although I, could, I can't find any like, information about the picture, but the picture is like this huge gap, and there's all sorts of wood going all the way across. It sort of looks like the roller coaster at Magic Mountain, the Colossus. You know how there's just like wood everywhere. It looks like this gap of like wood just going across this whole gap. And so as they had it completed, they were going to run a train across it to show that the, that the bridge could support the weight. 
And as they brought the train across, as they brought the train, the engineer who designed the whole bridge said, "No, we're gonna we, that train. It's, while it's larger than the average train, it's not large enough." And so he specially brought in a train and a, a number of cabooses or whatever, like linking trains, whatever. I'm not a big train guy either. Cars, yeah, look, yeah. They made it four times heavier than a heavy load that will go across. And he said, we're not just driving it across the bridge. We're going to drive it to the middle, and we're going to park it in the middle of the bridge for 24 hours. And so when he did this, the, the head foreman or whatever said, what are you trying to destroy this bridge that we just built? And he looked at him, and he said, no, I need to show you all that this bridge is strong enough to, to hold this amount of weight. And so the devotional goes with this illustration. He said, in the same way, the temptations Jesus faced weren't designed to see if he would sin, but to prove that he couldn't. And so we remember Matthew, well, all of the Gospels, I think, tell this. Um, Matthew is showing that this Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the promised one. Satan is bringing his A game he can't fail. And as I'm sort of researching this, getting lost in like theological conversations that I wouldn't bring here because they're not of any value, I stumbled across a theologian, Bruce Ware, who's actually a Southern Baptist theologian that teaches at Southern Seminary. About three years ago, he wrote a book dealing with this dual nature of Christ and looking at the temptations that he went through. And in this book, he says this, the reason... Christ did not sin is different from the reason that Christ could not sin. And when I saw that, I thought that was like fascinating. Um, Christ couldn't sin because he's God, but in his humanity, we can't dismiss that he went through great trial, great strain, great pressure as this temptation or these temptations were placed upon him. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Which sort of points to the, the emphasizing the kenosis, the emptying of Christ. The, the, the point is that Christ is God. He is the Messiah. But yet he subjected himself, himself to, to be placed under great pressure, great temptation as we are. The author of Hebrews makes it that any temptation that you've ever faced in your life, that you've ever struggled with or going through, we're told that we have a high priest, we have Jesus who gets it. He understands what you're going through. He identifies with your struggles and he wants you to come to him. I don't know about you, but it's so much easier that when I have a struggle, being able to go to somebody that has walked down that road and experienced the same trials. They say, I've been there, I've done that, I get it. Well, Jesus can say that to all of us. And so as we enter into this story, after we read the words, the last line in chapter 3, the great baptism of Jesus, that he's dunked by John the Baptist, and as he comes up, the heavens open up, the voice from heaven, the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. From this high mountaintop inauguration of Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
Like from this high victory, he's going to go through this valley. It's interesting that the Spirit is, is leading him to be tempted by the devil. This word tempted, I think in this discussion as we go through this passage, this word tempted can be translated in two ways. It can be translated tested or it can be translated tempted. I believe that God tests us and tests individuals. I believe that Satan tempts individuals. I think the main distinction is a test is to show strength, resilience, ability. Temptation is brought for the sake of destroying and destruction and ruining things. And so so God the Father is leading Jesus into the wilderness to be tested. Satan is going to come to try to wreak havoc. This would be a monumental victory for Satan that would undo basically God's plan of, of redemption. But it's impossible for Satan to do that. And so he's led out into the wilderness. Remember, the wilderness is desert, barren. Um, it says, and after he'd fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And so we see that Jesus goes out there. He's fasting. He's not eating. He's not consuming water. Um, there, there's, there's so much here. I, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about fasting. But I will say that fasting for the Christian is something that I believe that we should do at some sporadic interval. Like I, I'm not going to say, oh, you need to fast once a week or once a month or once a year or once every five years. But there are seasons in our life when I do believe that fasting is necessary. I see that fasting is a time for us to sort of consecrate ourselves, to focus on God, to seek God, to ask him to lead us, um, to pray for something that we're really burdened for. Um, While fasting is food, I also think that fasting can be used in other ways. Um, Fasting from from media, from golfing, from whatever your little hobby is that may uh, be pulling you away from God. And so here Jesus, as he starts his earthly ministry, he takes 40 days to fast, to not eat. We know that his earthly ministry was brutal. Um, We can't comprehend this. Jesus is about to launch out into this display. So he's seeking the Father, seeking wisdom, being prepared to go out. By the end of this, the last night, we see that as he's praying and his sweat is coming out with blood and, and sweat, what does he ask the Father? If this cup could pass from me, if there's any other way, if there's any other option, I would be up for doing that. So we need to see the intensity Jesus gets, what he's about to go through over the next three years. And so while he's there fasting, it says he's not hungry. It was after he was done fasting, he became hungry in the English It almost makes it sound like after the fasting was done, he becomes hungry and then Satan comes in. I don't think that that's what's going on. I think that Satan, during this whole course, this whole window that he's at the wilderness, while he's fasting, that Satan is playing his game. He's he's attacking Jesus. We'll see three temptations in this passage. Um, In 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16, you don't have to turn there. John speaks of sort of this three-pronged approach that Satan has been using from day one. We see it with Adam and Eve. We see it here with Jesus. You'll see it in your own life. And the attack is threefold. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. 
And so attack number one by Satan to Jesus is, is against the flesh, physical needs and desires. And so in verse 3, we read the first temptation. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now the if is a first-class condition in the Greek, which means this isn't sort of if and I don't think you are. This is if and I do believe you are. You could translate these the, the, the ifs in the first temptation, the second translation, or second temptation as since. Satan understands who he's dealing with. There's no question to Satan that Jesus is God and that he's the Messiah. And he's saying, since you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. It, it literally, the word command is speak. Speak that the stones turn into bread. It identifies the picture of creation that God spoke creation into existence. There's no question in Satan's mind that Jesus has the capacity, the aptitude, the the authority to turn stones into bread. I've been thinking about this. Like, is it wrong to be hungry? No. Is it wrong to make bread? Or even to... Is it wrong to, to, to miraculously create bread by Jesus? No. As we get through Matthew, we're going to see t- twice there's the multiplication of the bread for the feeding of the 5,000, and then there's the multiplication of the bread for feeding of the 4,000. So Jesus clearly, in, in his ministry, in his life, He's going to do these things. He's going to miraculously create. So it's like, well, what's wrong with what Jesus, like, I don't necessarily get it. I don't come to this temptation. If you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. I don't, you know, like in Frozen, do you want to build a snowman? I don't have that, like, (laughs) the gift of, like, turn that chair into a, a carne asada burrito. It's like, like, I don't like cheesecake. Like, I can't, like, I can't imagine how fun that would be if I could just turn whatever into, like, food. like, I don't have that power. Nobody does. So I don't necessarily go, I don't get it. Like, what's the big deal? Like, Jesus can satisfy his hunger by making bread. Being hungry is not wrong. Making bread's not wrong. Like, this doesn't seem like that big of a temptation. And I think in all of the temptations to understand the heart, because none of us are God, amen? None of us are Jesus. We don't, we're not in the same position. And so it's sort of, it can be difficult to understand what the temptation is until we see Jesus' response. And Jesus' response to each of the temptation shows us the sort of the heart or the issue that the temptation is sort of tugging on. And so as he says, well, since you're the son of God, why don't you just turn these stones into bread and satisfy that hunger? And Jesus answered and said, he quotes from Deuteronomy, all of Jesus' responses are going to be from Deuteronomy. Uh, I don't have time. You guys can do it in your own time. You can research what was going on. But we'll see in many of these contexts of, that Jesus quotes from, it's after a time of Israel's failing and sort of contrasting their failing with Jesus' perfection. And he quotes Deuteronomy, and he tells Satan, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 
And so what Jesus says to Satan, that the issue, that the, the, the temptation that's being brought before him is that what Satan's trying to do is to, to cause Jesus not to lean upon and trust God to care for him, to meet his needs. There's a warning here that sometimes doing a uh, that sometimes you can do the right thing in the wrong way. Um, the area that really comes to mind that over the years of being a pastor, um, working with young men in particular, normally the young ladies, I don't really do a lot. That I kind of like point them to my wife. But what I found is between I don't know where the bottom like. Wherever it starts until like marriage window, I found that there are young men who like love God that have desires within them that they strongly want to be connected to a woman. And it can be a great strain upon them especially for the young man who is trying to honor god and please god it can be difficult in our culture because we've so delayed marriage we've extended engagements so they're like i think you have to be engaged for like 15 years now before you're actually allowed to like get married so we we created we've created this culture so that a, a young person who wants to like honor god they're fighting against a good thing. Sex is good. Amen? Sex is great. Sex is designed before a man and a woman in the context of marriage, and it's beautiful. It got real quiet in here all of a sudden. Like this, uh, it, it's, it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> Thanks, Alberto. Like it's a, this, this is, God has, the, the, the feelings that a young person who is not married are feeling, these are desires that God has given us for his glory, for our benefit, this is, is a beautiful thing. But in that window, this is a, a, an area where Satan will say, you don't have to do it God's way. Don't trust God for that future spouse. You just take matters into your own hands. I, I think another area that it's easy to do, like our nation, over the last however many years it's been now, that there's been this like exposure of how we've handled debt and credit cards and i think that credit cards are another way that we're able to sort of uh, we sense that god maybe is leading us to do something and i'm not i'm not anti-credit card so i don't don't don't. but there are times i think when um, we are able to sort of finance something that maybe god's not behind or we rob god the blessing of being able to provide it for us because satan has told us that we deserve it you need it. And I guarantee you that during the Super Bowl today, like this is all what marketing is. Commercials are going to tug off the lust of our, our, our desires. And I guarantee you, I'm going to see a pickup truck in one of the commercials driving up a mountain, carrying 30 elephants through fire. And I'm going to need that $70,000 truck. I am. Now, God might wait me to wait for a few years or like a really long time. But there's somebody who will let me kind of fast track that and maybe make an unwise decision. So I, so I think that the temptation here is these aren't necessarily, this isn't a bad thing, but sometimes 
Satan will use good things that God has created for us and he will manipulate it so that we depart from the one who is good, who created them. The, the Life Application Bible Commentary says this, many desires are normal and good, but God wants you to satisfy them in a way, in the right way at the right time. True discipleship means learning from Christ how to know the right ways in the right times. Okay, so from this one, saying kind of easy one, turn the rocks into bread. Jesus comes back with scripture. God says, the word says, which is a good example to us, scripture is a good way to sort of defend ourselves. It's written, don't, wait, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We're to be dependent upon him. And then Satan in temptation number two, test number two, going after possessions and power, we read in verse five, then the devil took him, that's Jesus, into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if or since you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his holy angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Okay, this is a really weird temptation. Okay, can we go to the slide if, uh, to the next picture here? This is a picture standing on top of the Mount of Olives. Um, you'd go down a steep hill, and then at the bottom is a valley called the Kedron Valley that goes between here. You're looking at the temple, looking from the east to the west, and on this wall, it's believed that this is the location. This is the most technical term I could talk about the size of this is ginormous. I don't know if that's a real world word, but, but I mean, those are huge trees in there. Like to put that, that what is the Dome of the Rock, the, the, the moss there? I mean, that's huge. I think that these little specks right here, I think that's a person. So, so this is huge. And so what Satan is basically saying is, commentators are kind of funny like I don't know like is is this a picture that he's presented is this real the text it seems like that somehow they were transported to this location and Satan says just jump off see there's no tempt you could take me to Coronado Bridge all day long and you're never going to commit you're not going to tempt me to jump off like it's just it's not going to happen it's not like it's not going to be a struggle for me to be like you're crazy I'm not jumping But he says, jump off. And then he quotes scripture. He quotes from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. And see, even in my notes, I have that he misquotes. Everybody says he misquotes. He doesn't misquote this, which is even more horrifying. Satan knows the word of God, and he actually uses it correctly. Because what it says there is that he's saying jump off, because it says right there in Psalm 91 that concerning his Messiah, that he's not going to let him get hurt, that, he, that his angels, if you're something about, he will command his angels concerning you on their hands, they will bear you up so that you, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He's saying it's in the word of God, Jesus. Like if you go here and you throw yourself off, there's no way that you're going to be harmed because the word of God tells us that you'll be protected until the right time and these angels will supernaturally guard you from this. But this still doesn't like, really explain, like, what is the temptation? What is, what's going on? And Jesus' response, 
gives great insight into what, what I believe that the struggle is. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, see, Jesus doesn't say you're using that wrong. He says, well, on the other hand, the scripture also says, you shall not put the Lord God, the Lord your God to the test. And so what's the test? Thinking of the kenosis, the, the emptying, here is Jesus, the, the God who created the heavens and the earth, who spoke things into existence, who is outside of time. Uh, he humbles himself. He becomes a man. He's born of a woman. He has poopy diapers. He's breastfeed. Like the guy who's creating the world is like an infant that is totally helpless. Luke says that as he was growing, he, he like matured along the way. Like he grew in wisdom and stature. Like so he had to develop like every other human. We're told that his father was a carpenter. In our minds, we have sort of carpentry sort of like with working with wood. Um, there's, a, there's some supporting evidence that he might not be working with wood. Like if you go to the Middle East, most of their craftsmen, they're building their structures are made out of stone, which is more, would be more like a, 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 a brick mason or stone mason. I've known one or two stone masons in my life, and those guys work hard. They are hard, hard guys. It, like lifting bricks all day and getting it. So, so here's the creator of the universe. He comes into a poor family. He's working a very blue-collar life for 30 years. And now he's about to start his ministry at three years, which is going to be a painful three years. So it culminates in his death. A shameful death, naked on the cross, being mocked, being scourged, being ridiculed by the people that he came to save. And so I think saying, saying, come on, you're God. Why are you playing this game? You just go to the public square. You jump off. Everybody's going to see the angels sort of protect you. And at that point, it's game on. You're, the Messiah is established. Don't play that. So that's where the temptation <laughs> Jesus endured suffering for us. The temptation of like, let's just bypass this game. Can we just maybe even get to the cross or bypass the cross? Can we do something? But Jesus says, it is also written, you shall not put the Lord God to, test, to the test, which is, which is just concluding Malachi. The, the one verse that a lot of people in the prosperity gospel like to quote is Malachi 3.17, which says, test the Lord your God with your giving. The only place it says it, and then the very, like, not very long after Malachi, you know, 400 silent years, and as the story gets kicking up again as the Messiah comes, like, and like the second or third time that Jesus speaks, he says to saying, don't put the Lord God to the test. None of us are in a position to test God. And I'm not sure how we in our lives test God. Do we each... Um, I've probably made some foolish vows with God. If you do this, then I'll do this. I am not in a position, and neither are you, to bargain with God. And so from here, I think saying in the third temptation, where he goes for the boastful pride of life, I think he's like, if these were a gambling, a gambling context, which I used to do and I don't anymore, because I don't have the gift of moderation, but if this was me gambling and I started like losing, 
what I would do is I would probably get as much money as I could possibly get out of the ATM or wherever I could in the old days. I'd say, this is where we go for broke. We're going to lay it all on this next hand. We're going to lay it all on black. We're going to do whatever. Let's just go for it. And I think in this last one, Satan is like, I mean, he's just going to go, is it the big enchilada? Is that a saying? Is that like, he's going for it all. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. There's no mountain in the, in the world where you can see all of the kingdoms. So this, I'm guessing this is like a supernatural realm that somehow Satan took him and he shows him all of the kingdoms, all of their glory to Jesus, who all of these things, like he's, he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, like he is the Lord over all, all of these things, he is Lord over. And so Satan brings them to this location, shows them, and he says to them, all of these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. The whole, like, I think this is what they're saying, to sell your soul to Satan. To make this compromise. And, and if we slow up and we start thinking about Satan and his history, how did he fall from heaven? He fell, he fell from heaven because he wanted to be God. He wanted to be worshipped as God was worshipped. There would be no greater gift to Satan, no greater victory than to be there on earth to have the creator and sustainer of the universe to bow down and worship him. See the bigger picture here. This is, this is, like, this is what Satan's wanted the whole time. He wants to be worshipped as God and to have God worshipping him. It will, never, it, it will never happen. But I appreciate his effort with this. It's almost kind of funny when you start thinking about it. And then Jesus said to him, or maybe it's just me, I don't know. Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He's like, beat it, get out of here, leave. And we're going to see that he leaves. When he, when he says, go, Satan. Now this, this whole go, Satan, the thing that jumped out at me is, for those of us who know the gospel somewhat, well, this phrase, it, it was close enough that I had to look up. Because remember what Peter did? Over in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is asking everybody, who do people say that I am? They go through all their stuff. And then they say, no, but who do you guys say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of God. You are the Messiah. And Jesus says, you got it all right. And then we're told in that passage that Jesus says from that point, he begins to show them about his death, burial, and resurrection, that he has to go to the cross. And Peter then says, may it never be. Like, you're, you will not die. I will, I will give my life to defend you, Lord. And it says that, that Peter's like literally rebuking Jesus for this, for this crazy idea of his that he would go to be killed. And in, that, in Jesus' response, he says, get behind me, Satan. But I couldn't remember if he said, go Satan. So I'm like, this go Satan, it's uncanny. So that Jesus would refer to an individual that is being used by Satan to sort of... Uh, Attack him. 
And as like, when we look at the story, it's very easy. And the, 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 the first and the predominant thing that I think that we should see is that Christ is Lord, that he is strong, that he is the creator that is able to endure um, ultimate temptation. We should be able to learn through this. Um, one who is being tempted, how do we protect ourselves from being uh, tempted along these same lines? The, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, that we need to recognize that we're under attack. But it's so easy in the story to sort of, I like this week in my studying, when I saw this go Satan and I link it to Peter, that suddenly things sort of flipped. And I would suggest, I'd like us to consider another area that we need to be on guard for. That if Jesus told Peter, who was the leader of the early church, who pens many books of the, of the New Testament, who led the early church under his leadership, if Peter can be told by Jesus to get behind me, Satan, I, I think that we need to at least take a little time to say, well, how could I be functioning on Satan's behalf? And I don't think we, well, I don't, I'm not going to speak for you guys, but I know I don't like thinking along those lines. I am. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure how far to take this. Just humor me for a little bit. If Peter is labeled by Jesus, get behind me, Satan, that the things that he, was, that he was doing was given credit for Satan and his work. Certainly that, like what he said was good. It wasn't bad. Like, he, like Peter loved Jesus. He was trying to defend him. He was standing for something that he thought was right, but in his standing for what was right, he was actually going against what, what God wanted in God's plan. And, and um, I've been doing in the last, I don't know, a couple months, I, 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 you know, to get real honest with you guys, which I did during the last service, I'll be honest twice. Uh, it's a joke. Last year was a really hard year for me. Like, I, it, it was a, a really challenging, challenging year. Um, there, there was a lot of periods where I was, like, wrestling, like, Lord, what do you, like, it was the hardest year that I've ever had at Valley Baptist Church. Lord, what are you doing in my life? Sort of wrestling, am I supposed to be here? Am I, like, are you, are you still leading me this way? Um, like, where Anna and I went through some real difficult things, and I'm not at all saying that I'm leaving. I think that it's some. It's in these hard years that I would say that my the, the calling and to be here is affirmed. It's through diff. I don't find my affirming of my calling that I'm in the right place during the the sweet seasons. It's in the that like things are really hard and dealing with really hard things where where you'd want to pull chalks and leave. And so through this window of kind of like knowing that God has me here, like I'll probably die in Valley Center. This is like, I feel like God has planted us here of like, okay, Lord, how do I continue to grow and to follow your lead? And so I started, uh, like I'm rereading a bunch of books on, you, you know, how to help a church grow. What are, the, what are the things that we value here? What are the important issues at our church and a, a number of the books I've read, like Sticky Teams is a church we've got, I, like some of the leadership has gone through. There's a book that 
is I think used in about every seminary, but nobody talks about church, is um, ministering to well-intentioned dragons and other books like these that one of the issues within the church that seems to be the, the greatest issue for me as a leader to defend and to guard against is the unity of the church. Um, when Jesus, on the night which he was betrayed, the thing he prayed for is not that like mega churches would, would develop, that, that, that people would come to know him. Those things would happen, but what he prayed for is that there would be unity within the body of Christ. <clears throat> and so <clears throat> I realize that this is a super important area within our church. Like, I, we're, we're unified. I'm not saying this is like that there's anything bad going on. I'm just, <clears throat> this is an area that I, I don't think that I foresaw <clears throat> the, the difficulty times coming. In some ways, being a seal was so much easier than leading a church. It's a very difficult to lead a church. It's very difficult to lead a bunch of different personalities and keep them unified. When I think back over the last eight years, the, the difficulties going to people when there's a death, being there when you know people are in the hospital, when they're at their rock bottom, those things are easy. Like not, I don't want to say easy, but those things are are. Like they're, I'm not sure what the right word. They're rewarding. They're intimate. They're special. To to be invited into people's lives during that time is just, it's an amazing thing. It's beautiful. The thing that I didn't see is like thoughts. You know, the idea of the well-intentioned drive. When I started thinking about church splits, you know, churches argue and fight and split all the time, and it's over silly stuff. It's like the quote-unquote the mature Christians arguing about. Oh, there's too much contemporary music. Oh, there's too many hymns. Oh, it's not blended enough. Oh, it's too blended. Oh, you do too much outreach. No, you don't do enough outreach. You do too much visitation. You don't do enough visitation. You, whatever it is, is like, ah. What's that? I take too long. I got plenty of time. <laughs> Thank you for not clapping anybody. Like, it's like the strain of navigating relationships. Uh, like, this is the unity issue that is so important with the church. And I think Satan has used well-intentioned Christians to create more division in his church than anything else. And it, uh, this is how churches split. This is how First Southern Baptist Church of whatever town then added Second Baptist Church of that town. Somebody argued because that church doesn't do enough contemporary music or something absolutely ridiculous. Not to make light of it, but it's, but the, 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 this is, I think, if Satan was to give an attack on the, a church, it's not by the, the liberal people attacking the church. It's not by the drug addict who becomes a Christian and then starts growing in the church. It's not by the person who their whole world fell apart and they start coming. Those people aren't creating the problems. It's the, at times, like the, the mature Christians that feel like that they're leading the right way. And we need to guard ourselves against this sort of legalism because I think it's in these strains that Satan can work. It's funny, um, you know, Anna, and I, Anna just found a picture the other day. I don't know where she found it. She's like, oh, look at this picture. When we first came to Valley Baptist, like, Grace is this little kid. And it's like, what happened to us? 
It's like, you know, you look at the president over eight years, it's like, what happened to him? And this hardly is like being the president. But it's like, we've kind of like aged. And I'm sure it happens to all of us. But uh, okay, let's move on. A verse came to me, not, not to move on too far. So there's a verse in 1 Timothy. If you want to you know, humor me in going there, 1 Timothy 5.17 through about verse 25. I've seen this verse in seminary. I've had thoughts. And then, you know, I, I become a pastor and, and suddenly you start seeing things in a different light. I really want to make the point of how important the unity that, that we need to each work hard at maintaining the unity. Um, this is not a new issue. I'm going to start for context in First Timothy verse First Timothy five verse seventeen. He begins with the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, "You shall not muzzle the ox." While he is threshing and the laborer is worthy of his wages, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So he's talking to Timothy, young guy who's trying to like lead the church and see between these lines as accusations, these are opinions. <laughs> too much contemporary music, not enough contemporary music. Too much hymns, not enough hymns. We're not balanced enough. You use the wrong translation. You don't tuck your shirt in or you tuck your shirt in or whatever. Like These are accusations. And Paul tells Timothy an accusation against an elder needs to be taken very seriously on the person who's making it because it's not easy leading a church. Then he goes on to say, verse 20, those who continue to sin rebuke in the presence of all. Nobody's being rebuked today, don't worry. So that the rest will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and in Christ Jesus and his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias and doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. And then the part I'm coming to, this is the, it says, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. It is hilarious hearing people talk about this verse. Oh, it wasn't wine. It was like we're talking about like NyQuil or some sort of medicine because he had problems. But when you read this verse in context, Paul is what it's saying is Timothy, the pastor, is a very difficult place. It is difficult managing these relationships. As you're fighting and striving for the unity of the church, it is stressful. You're going to lose sleep. You're going to have anxiety. And what you need to do is relax and have a glass of wine. Like I, like, and I don't drink. And I'm not even. I'm not making a pitch to say, hey, I'm going to start um, changing our potlucks. Um, <laughs> but reading this, there is like, like, and I'm not complaining. I love what I do. But what I really want to encourage us as a church is like like requesting prayer. Like I'm an elder, Ben's an elder, Alberta's an elder over the Spanish ministry. Don is like not, he doesn't hold the title and he's like would probably try to shake it off as fast as he could. But Don Fredericks truly is an elder at this church and leading um, us in worship. And I would cherish 
we each would cherish your prayers because leading and navigating a church is a very difficult thing that you would be very intentional about building unity within the body. It's a beautiful thing we have it, but it's something that is so easily fractured. And so you guys can go back to Matthew. And I probably spent more time than I should. I didn't want to just gloss over this without us sort of taking a sober look in the mirror and saying, Lord, am I doing things? Am I being a well-intentioned dragon actually creating like being used by Satan to fracture the church because there's nothing greater than Satan can do to the body of Christ locally in the local church and at the church at large than to create division, which he's done really successfully in a lot of areas. And so Jesus in verse 10 says, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. It was he departed right away. James 4, 7 says, submit therefore to God. Remember, the, this started Jesus' response. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but he lives on every word that comes out of uh, the mouth of God. The heart of this is that we're dependent upon God. Uh, I, some guy this week in my studying, he said something that I thought was hilarious. In Christianity today, there's a huge argument over like, the freedom of an individual's will and the sovereignty of God. And it's really a ridiculous, like, I don't even want to get into that right now. And the guy said, it's a ridiculous argument. He's like, I don't even, he's like, what I see in the New Testament is I see that you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to Christ. And what Christ wants from us as Christians is to be a slave of him. And James says, submit therefore to God. And if God is my master, it's easy to submit to him and to walk with him, although not perfect. As we submit to him, we're to resist the devil. And it says that he will flee from you. Satan is not omnipresent. He is not everywhere. He can, he's a created being. He has an army. There is a warfare going on. But greater is he that is in you. That's the spirit of God that we as Christians have Christ within us. We don't, have to, we don't have to be worried about him. We draw near to God and he will flee. He goes on to, he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And we see after all of this that angels came and began to minister to him. I don't know. The Bible doesn't really speak. Uh, like the whole concept of a guardian angel like, we don't see that concept really in Scripture. Like, in Ephesians, after you believed and you became a Christian, you're still in the Spirit, it doesn't say, and you were issued to an angel to guard after you. Like, so the whole thought of a guardian angel isn't there. However, we see verses like this and others in Hebrews where we see the sort of picture of angels and one of their ministries is caring for and nurturing. And I don't know how, I don't think that there's necessarily one assigned to each one of us. But there seems to be some components behind the scenes of where angels can and do minister to us like they do to Jesus. So my prayer for us is that we recognize that, we're in, that there is a spiritual battle happening. That Satan and his army is battling for you and against you. He's going after the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. We are under attack. God has given us a way out. 
In 1 Corinthians 10.13, Paul writes that no temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Nowhere in the scripture does it say God will give you more than you can handle. It's not in the Bible. You can't handle any, like we can't handle, like we need Christ to help us. But here he says that no temptation, anything you're going through, any temptation, it's, it's common to man. Like you, you, you can, he's provided a way out and sometimes it means just like running out of there like Joseph did. And Jesus wants us to turn to him. That, that passage that I me- mentioned earlier, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near to God with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus endured this temptation and these temptations so that we have a God who understands. There is nothing that you're going through that God says, I don't understand, I don't get it. He wants us to turn to him to say, Lord, I'm struggling in this area. I need your help. He is calling for us to turn to him, to abide with him. I'm going to give the last word to Charles Spurgeon. This is what he says on this passage. What settings are you in when you fall? Avoid them. What props do you have that support your sin? Eliminate them. What people are you usually with? Avoid them. There are two equally damning lies that Satan wants us to believe. Number one, just once won't hurt. And number two, now that you have ruined your life, you are beyond God's use and might as well enjoy sinning. Learn to say no. It will be of more use to you than to be able to read Latin. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who understands us, a God who relates to us, a God who came to this earth to live life as we do. We thank you, Lord, that you resisted sin, that you led the perfect life, that you ultimately were able to make that acceptable offering on behalf of us that the wrath of God might be satisfied. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand that as Christians, we are your slaves, that we are owned by you, that we are no longer under the authority of sin and Satan. Lord, although our flesh has a raging war within us, Lord, we desire to walk with you to please you. Father, we thank you that you understand what we're going through. Father, we thank you that you desire us to turn to you Lord, we pray um, that you would help us to walk life in the spirit. We thank you that when we stumble, you're there to pick us up. That as we confess, you cleanse us, you restore us. Father, we pray that you would help us each uh, to be used by you. That you would help us to, to, to really be agents that, that build unity within uh, the, the body of our church, our families, 
our friends. Lord, we desire that you would have your way in our lives, that we would honor you, that we would be pleasing to you. We thank you, Lord, um, that you're faithful. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.